Imagine a course in which a faculty member is a coach who guides students through a real-world project with messy data and the problem-solving that comes with it. In this episode, we examine how a course with no content can provide students with a rich learning experience full of analysis and insights. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Katherine Burko. Katie is an assistant professor of management information systems at the University of Delaware. She is also the host of the On Cultivating Student Engagement in Higher Ed podcast. Welcome back, Katie. Thanks so much for having me on again. We're really happy to talk to you again. And our teas today are... I'm having a decaf Earl Grey. Good classic. I'm having a Scottish afternoon tea, which is my new regular. And I am drinking vanilla almond tea. It's a black tea from the Republic of Tea. I really like almond teas. This is my first. It was a gift from my son. So we invited you back, Katie, to talk about your capstone course that you offer. Can you tell us a little bit about the course? Absolutely. I love talking about this class. It's one of my favorite courses to teach. I teach it every spring. And so having the break in the fall, teaching my other courses gives me a lot of renewed energy for this capstone. It's a senior capstone experience for our business analytics minors in their final semester as they prepare for their next steps after graduation. And the students have a variety of majors and a variety of perspectives in the class. And analytics is only their minor focus. And so in course design, I have had, I would say, two influences. I have a colleague who designed a similar capstone for our management information system students that relies on semester-long projects with an external sponsor. But also before coming to the University of Delaware, I worked in the financial services industry as a quant analyst. So I worked through lots of long, larger scale analytical projects. And so I modeled the course after my colleagues set up quite a bit, but I adapt it from my own professional analytical experiences. So when I first started teaching this course, I shied away from saying what I'm about to say. But now that I've seen enough students through the course to know that they learn so much over the course of the semester, I feel very comfortable sharing this. There is no content in this particular course, and I think that's what makes it so much fun. So we spend the complete semester working on a large-scale, real, unwieldy project that is truly representative of the type of project students will face in their professional careers as data scientists. The students work on the project throughout the semester. They report to me or my co-teacher as their manager every week. And we provide feedback on performance, suggestions, and resources for how to move forward. When the students are stuck, we've usually seen something like that before, and we can brainstorm together how to get unstuck. And sometimes all the students need is confidence that the direction they're planning to go in is a good one. But because there's no content, the projects can really unfold and be the focus for all of us throughout the semester, and each student team gets a unique experience. So the two important things that I really want students to know after finishing this course 
are one, that there's no perfect answer to a complex problem. There are only degrees of good, better, better than that when it comes to analytical solutions, which I'm sure is true in so many areas. And number two is that each unique problem needs its own thoughtful solution. We're not trying to teach students in this class how to think about every problem, just how to think analytically now that they have the analytical tools, not what to do in every situation, but how to think through each complex new situation they face. Do students in this class all work on the same project or do you have small groups working on projects? So each student team is working on a project throughout the semester. And this semester, for example, I'll have 42 students in the class working on nine distinct projects. Do the students define their own projects or do you have a predefined project? So I create the projects for them with community members. Because there's no content in the course, the project is the critical design component. So each year, I start getting ready months in advance, curating these projects for the semester. In the past, we've worked with our own athletics department on a variety of projects, a large retail banking institution, a service provider of home repairs, a few local nonprofit organizations, and lots of others. And so the variety is exciting because the students all have different interests as well. And I tell these organizations that all I really need from them is a sufficiently challenging research question. I mean, everybody's got lots of questions, but we have to really hone in on one theme and then enough data to support finding an answer to that question, perhaps. It's not been too challenging to get project sponsors interested because I'm offering free analytics. (laughs) And so... I might contact someone through a friend of a friend and say, here's a few naive questions. I think we might be able to help you answer if you had the data. And people generally seem excited to have an introductory conversation. So for example, some of the organizations that we've worked with want evidence of program efficacy. They might have survey data or some measurement of before and after metrics on the students or participants in the program. And we can use that data to answer the questions. Others have said, We want suggestions for how to price the seats in our new stadium, which is super open-ended. And they'll provide some data about ticket sales, for example. And so it's a very open-ended, data-driven question, but it's not standard. And sometimes those non-standard questions are even more fun. So I write up a project description after a couple of meetings, discussion, thought with the project sponsor that might be two to five pages. It's not a lot of information. And then I get the data into a format the students can work with, which sometimes is me doing nothing to prepare the data. I do want the students to struggle a little bit with formatting the data since data cleaning is a big part of learning to be a successful data analyst. But I provide lightly processed data and a project description to the students as their starting point. So I ask them what project they'd like to work on after introducing the projects to them on the first day of class. And I try to fit students to a project that they're most interested in. But really, sometimes I'm surprised that some projects are more popular than others, and it's not the ones that I expect. Paul Hanster has a book called Creating Wicked Students, Designing Courses for a Complex World. And what you're doing sounds very much like what he's advocating. Giving students really challenging problems where there's no clear solutions is a really good way of helping them pull together all the things they learn. So in a sense, the content is really everything they've done up to the capstone but you're giving them an opportunity to apply it in ways that they'll need to if they're going to be successful in their careers. Absolutely. Completely. Because I did read that book and really felt inspired. And I think I was already doing this style, of course, at the time, but it made me feel like I was headed in the right direction, that giving students this opportunity to 
try solving a problem that has no answer. And most of the problems they try to solve in their careers don't already have answers, or we'd just be using those existing solutions. And so it is really good practice, I think, for whatever's next, especially in the field of analytics. We don't know what the technology looks like or the methods are going to look like as we move forward. And so they really need to be able to think critically about ethical concerns, methodologies, how to work with their data in a really honest and skilled way that can be applied to lots of wicked problems. So it sounds like in a process like this, which sounds similar to kinds of courses that I also teach, you act more as a coach rather than more of a traditional teacher, kind of coaching them along on how to respond to the data, respond to what's happening in the moment. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that's something that I love about this class. I know a lot of your guests have talked about removing themselves from the stage on the stage position and becoming the coach or cheerleader in an active environment. And that is one of the things I love most. When students are excited and driving the questions, I get even more excited to talk about what those answers might look like with them. Do students have the opportunity to talk to your community partners or is it always through you? So we stage the course in three sections and we have three presentations associated. So the students will get started and spend maybe three weeks or so working with the data, getting to know it, generating some questions and some initial discovery points. And then they'll present those results to their sponsor. And actually teaching online has been much easier for the project sponsors because they can easily attend presentations and provide feedback. Usually in that first round, the discovery period, the students present something and the sponsor can say, oh, let me explain that. It's sort of a back and forth where there's a lot of sort of correcting any misunderstandings or answering questions. Phase two, the students are working toward what I call an initial solution. This solution might be a basic model that makes some assumptions that are maybe not appropriate, but just to get started. And it underscores what I love most about the class, which is the idea of iterative solution. Presentation three is going to give them an opportunity to refine the solution, completely abandon what they did for presentation two, or improve it in a way that makes it more realistic, more robust, more an answer to the project sponsor's research question. So absolutely, the students get to interact with their project sponsors during those presentations where they are leading the show, they're having the conversation, they're hearing the direct feedback as though the project sponsor is their manager in that moment. And then I can sort of serve as a liaison saying, I think what you're saying is this, maybe we can put that on our to-do list and sort of just offering the support to both sides to help everybody come together for a solution. How do you assess the contributions of individual students in the group projects? This will be the fourth time we offer this class, and this has evolved quite a lot. A few things have remained the same. Those presentations I mentioned are a clear part of assessment in the class. But each week, I require that each team submit a status update, and that will be a highly detailed list of achievements toward answering their research questions, and also a list of highly detailed to-dos for the next week. So even though it's not a class in project management, they're getting that scope of accountability for moving their project forward. And I require that each student's name appear next to achievements and next to to to-do items. And that gives me an opportunity to really see what's happening. 
but we also have weekly meetings. The students, instead of meeting in a classroom setting where the entire class is together, I'll meet with each group for maybe 30 minutes. If they need more time, certainly we can have an office hour set up. But 30 minutes is usually plenty for us to discuss anything from the status update, for them to get feedback from me, and for me to say things like, doesn't really seem like we've done enough this week. What's going on, team? Just like their manager would say in real life, maybe they haven't had a chance to have that really in-person accountability conversation before. The need for that is very rare. Most of the time, I'm saying things like, wow, I'm so blown away by what you've achieved this week. How can I best assist this week with your to-dos? What do you want to talk about in this meeting? But those are the three components. I recently transitioned to specifications grading, which has been a ton of fun in this particular class because the senior students are so independent and really prepared to graduate that this gives them a lot of flexibility. So I require excellence in answering the research question as the C-level component. So the team grade is the C. Do a great job on this project. And then I can add in individual components that will scale toward a B and an A. So for this semester, for example, the students will earn a B if they complete a data ethics module where they have to think and write about some ethical dilemmas in data science. They write reflections on visiting speakers who are analytical professionals that we have come to class via Zoom, and they evaluate their own performance. And then to earn an A, I ask that the students take on a particularly challenging component of answering their team research question. And I don't give a lot of guidance there except to say, discuss it with your instructor so that everybody's on the same page so I can help them determine what is sufficiently challenging to be truly deserving of an A because every project is so different. I don't want to spell out what they need to do. But an example would be if you're working toward a C in the class, you could work with a team member to generate a model that answers a particular, say, sub-question of your focus. But if you're working toward an A, you need to be maybe developing that model on your own. The one thing that I do promise students is that there will be no surprises. I know it sounds like there's some looseness in the specifications, but we're talking about it every week in our meetings. And if students are not on track to earn that excellence C-level grade, then they know about it with plenty of time. And I've really never had to give students much more motivation than, hey, I haven't really seen much from the team this week. Let's talk about those to-dos for next week. It sounds like those meetings are really important in terms of processing learning, not only just moving the project forward, but also just processing what are they learning and how might they move that forward in the future, not just in their projects. And you also mentioned some sort of self-evaluation or reflection. Can you talk a little bit more about that component? Oh, sure. At the end of the semester, I asked them to do this performance evaluation of themselves in much the same way that I have to write one in my role and have done in the past. It gives them a little bit of practice self-reflecting. I'm not really judging performance based on their performance assessment. I've already seen what they've done in the meetings. When they speak with confidence about something complicated, I know that they've learned a lot. So I really just ask them to be honest and say, what do you feel like were your greatest growth points? What do you feel like you still need to work on as you head into a professional role as a data analyst? And I also ask for feedback about the course. What were the elements that you felt contributed most to your growth this semester and what things didn't contribute anything? What have your student responses been to working on these projects? So ever since the first time the course was offered, the students have expressed 
sincere appreciation for the help in making a transition from student to professional. It seems like by the time this course pops up in their schedules, they are really ready to start becoming more independent and squeezing into a seat in a classroom just doesn't feel comfortable for them anymore. So they express that this course and other capstones like it that are problem-based really give them an opportunity to be in the driver's seat and have more independence in their senior spring. Many also have said that they've learned the skills of analytical thinking, data cleaning, planning, modeling, but now they're seeing for the first time how those things go together in a sequence and on a complete scale over much more time. This isn't just a week-long project where everything is abbreviated. And if they're going into an analysis role, this is going to be what their career is like. So I couldn't be happier than to hear those two things. It makes it feel like a success. But I'd also like to add something really selfish here. I get so much personal fulfillment from teaching students at any level. But this class really gives me the opportunity to stand back and coach, as you said earlier, Rebecca, rather than be that sage on the stage in front of the class with the slides. And I just get so much enjoyment from seeing the students take off, watching them steer the ship for the first time, getting their answers. I also teach them at sophomore levels, the intro course. And so I'm lucky enough to see them again at the senior level. And just saying that it makes me feel really proud is such a dramatic understatement because seeing them ready to leave the University of Delaware, become professionals, it's really, really fulfilling in a selfish way. My experience with classes like that, too, is that students really appreciate the opportunity to try out this pretend career (laughs) for a moment. It's a safe place to try that role out and understand where they fit in the bigger picture or what specific role within an area or field might be a good fit for them in a way that an internship doesn't because it's maybe a little more flexible or you have more of that direct contact with the faculty member during that process instead of just in the work environment. I've had students that have said that in those scenarios, they've really appreciated that opportunity to fail without repercussions. Yeah, that's a great point. It's like we're the coach, but we're also the bumper in the bowling alley. We're just trying to keep them on track and rolling forward. And I think what you said is true, especially as I think about what their roles might look like, different positions as data analysts. Maybe they're the best at doing the analysis, building the model, or maybe they're the best at communicating the results and being a liaison between people who are super analytical and people who are not super analytical. So this class, just as you said, gives them an opportunity to try on the different hats that might be available and see where they fit best in a comfortable, supported environment. When you mentioned watching your students grow from seeing them as sophomores to seeing them as seniors, I have very much the same experience. I used to teach a wider variety of classes, but in recent years, since I've been working at the teaching center, I primarily see them just as freshmen in a large intro economics course. And then I see them generally as juniors and seniors in an econometrics class and in a capstone course and seeing the change in them and seeing how they become confident with the material and seeing the work that they're able to produce is really impressive. It's a really nice feeling. Absolutely. And when you're talking to people from other universities or if you're talking to a panel during accreditation, it's really, really nice to be able to speak to the entire scope of the educational process. When you see them one time as sophomores or even one time as seniors, you only get that point in time feedback. But when you get to see the whole development process, it just makes you so proud of what the students are learning. And you have just such appreciation for all that your colleagues do along the way as well. It just makes it feel like there's a symphony happening here and that you can see it much more clearly. 
So Katie, you've talked about this is the fourth time you've taught it. So the first two times, I believe, were in person. Then you had a time that started in person that shipped out not in person. I imagine this time is remote. Absolutely. So can you talk about that transition or transformation? Sure. Last spring, we were in person for five weeks. And then we transitioned online. And I was actually having one of my group meetings with students when the email came out. So the email came out announcing that we were closing maybe at like 4.55. And we were meeting at 5. So I corralled the team into my office and I said, what's going on? Just read it out loud. Let's get this out in the open. And it was so helpful for me to see the students processing the information live because I was processing it too. But thinking in the way that they were thinking in that moment was so helpful to me. One student, for example, raised this question of, but I'm supposed to be on spring break when they say we're coming back to school. And I'm just like, "Uh uh-huh, let's take it one day at a time. This is obviously new information for all of us. But that's how she was processing. And the next student said, are we going to not have a graduation? And I don't know the answer to that. I said, well, I don't know if this is going to be two weeks or three months or longer, but we're just going to take it one day at a time. It was just so fascinating to hear what was happening in their minds. One of the questions that came up was, what's going to happen in this class? Like they felt almost more concerned about this class than some of their other ones transitioning online. And I said, well, that you certainly don't need to worry about. I feel less concerned about transitioning this particular class online than I do my other ones because all we do is have conversations. We have conversations together in this small group. We have conversations as a class where we're listening to a speaker and we have conversations with your project sponsors. And we can do all of that on Zoom. I was lucky enough to have had some experience with Zoom beforehand. And so I just felt really confident that there might be one or two things I had to think through, but that most of the things that we were doing could easily be achieved via Zoom. So it was the other classes that were more, I'll say, traditional in delivery format that I was worried about. So this, I feel like the students are getting exactly the same experience. They just don't get to shake their project sponsor's hand, which, you know, is a little bit disappointing. The networking component is really nice in person, but it's not necessary. And I think meeting in these small groups, I still get to know the students just as well and really can serve in the capacity of whatever they need, whether it's mentor thinking about helping them to find a job or just project mentor, whatever is needed. I can do via Zoom because it's in this sort of small group protected setting. And so it has been maybe the greatest challenge to transition other courses, not this one. So I really feel good about how this one is transitioned online. I was shaking my head up and down the whole time you were talking, Katie, because I felt the same way about my project-based courses. And in some ways, some of the logistics got so much easier being online. There's some classes that I do that were project-based. For example, our Vote Oswego project that I do with a political science faculty member in the fall, we do things with our classes together. It was so much easier to find a space we could all fit in on Zoom. We could easily get in and have the space to go into small groups without it getting too loud. And some of those logistics actually were really fine online. And then even with some other projects that we were doing, having our community partners join us more easily in a lot of ways by being on Zoom rather than having all the logistics of coming to campus in person and finding a time that's going to work. 
because there's all the travel time involved and what have you as well. Absolutely. One of our visiting speakers comes from Denver every year just to be with us. She happens to be a graduate of the University of Delaware and loves spending time with our students and giving back in that way. But when I had to call her and say, hey, we don't need you to come all the way from Denver anymore. We're going to be virtual. Maybe that was a relief. (laughs) But now it just opens the door. I've heard a lot of your guests say it opens the door for so much flexibility in the future to just bring in more voices into the classroom and have an opportunity to learn from just a variety of different people because the commute time is zero now. Going back to your point about students being a little anxious of how the course was going to proceed, I had a very similar experience with my capstone course compared to another more traditional type class. I met with them on the Monday before the shutdown began, and it wasn't announced, and there had been no discussion, at least that I had heard of on campus, but it was pretty clear that campuses all over the world were shutting down. So it was pretty clear we were going to as well. And I said, we should be prepared that this might be our last time meeting in person. And they said, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to keep doing all these meetings and keep going? And they wanted to make sure the class would be successful. I said, well, remember how I told you if you couldn't be here sometime, you could just come in on Zoom? Well, that's what we'll probably be doing in the event of a shutdown. Most of them had laptops there. I said, go to the Zoom website, create an account (laughs) just so you'll have it there because you may want to create your own sessions for work within your groups. And they downloaded Zoom to their smartphones and to the laptops. And I said, let's just try connecting and just make sure you mute your microphone so we don't get any feedback issues. And they were pretty relaxed about it. And nothing really about the course changed other than the fact that they were meeting over a computer. They were doing all the presentations. They were doing all their group work in breakout rooms instead of gathering tables around. And actually, in a lot of ways, it was easier because when they were meeting in small groups in the physical classroom, they were all looking over the shoulders of the people who were actually doing the writing at the time. And it was just so much easier for them just to share the screen and discuss it from wherever they were and have a much clearer view. I think it's really interesting that both of you are talking about how concerned the students were about being able to fulfill that particular class or that particular project. And I think it really attests to probably their commitment to that project. And Katie, in your case, it might be just because it's somewhat high stakes, right? There's a client or a partner involved that you want to satisfy. And it feels really satisfying to do real work for real people. And I've had this experience as well with community-based projects that students just are all in on those kinds of projects and just don't want to see them fail at all. That's true. I've never had a problem getting students motivated. I told you once in a while, I'll say like, what's happening this week? And then you hear there were some tests or something like that. But honestly, the students are highly motivated all semester because they're getting to interact with those project sponsors during the presentations. And they're going to be accountable to that person's face or group of people during the presentation. And so Sometimes I worry as we get closer to the end of senior spring that students are going to lose their motivation and it really doesn't happen. You know, they're tired by the end. They're ready to be done with the project because this might be the longest project they've ever worked on, but they really deliver and they always really impress me. I don't feel any stress at the end of the semester with grades because they, number one, they know what's happening. We're very clear all semester long about where their grade is headed but also because they're driving it. And this is a group of students who's elected to have a minor in addition to their major studies. And they're just highly motivated. Most of the class is earning an A by the end because of the excellent work they produce. Sounds like a really fun class to teach. I have so much fun. The hardest part's the project. Once the projects are made, the rest is easy. I just show up and ask questions. Mm -hmm. 
I love my projects classes. Is there any type of artifact that the students create that they can share with potential employers as a demonstration of what they've learned? I would say I always encourage the students to include their project on their resume. But I do ask students to sign non-disclosure agreements for their project sponsors. That makes everybody feel more comfortable. Sometimes the data is sensitive if it's got, for example, young children participating in a program. And other small businesses might not want to share their data. And so I have the students sign something, but I tell them if you're interviewing, you can certainly describe your involvement in the project in a loose way. You can talk about the specifics of the modeling you did and how you contributed to the client's end goals without saying, oh, I worked for this specific company. And they also do create an executive summary. So that's an artifact. They share their presentation slides, of course, with their customer, and they create an executive summary. But the goal of that artifact is to deliver information to their project sponsor and not necessarily to serve as a portfolio. When I offer this class in the graduate level, where I have professional students who might be working, I don't also ask them to work on a project for another organization. They collect their own project from publicly available data and they generate a description of what the impact they could have studying this publicly available data might be. They create a digital portfolio using a WordPress blog. And then that's something that they could really share as an artifact. So if it happened to be publicly available data they were studying, then they could certainly share that with a prospective employer. It's also a great opportunity at that capstone level to have conversations about the way that the profession works, whether it's non-disclosure agreements or copyright or whatever it might be related to what you're doing. These are important times to have those conversations before the students graduate and move into their professional lives. Absolutely, because the data in our classes is often either I'll call it simulated, which is just made up by me as an example, or some publicly available data that's already in a nice format. So it's good for them to have the exposure to working with data that is just in a different format because it comes from a different place, or to see that not every data set looks the same as the one your teacher might have curated in your sophomore level introductory course. We always end with a question, what's next? So Monday is the start of our semester at the University of Delaware. So what's next for me is diving into nine really exciting projects this semester with our seniors this year. So I'm really excited about that. But for the course overall, there's going to be a big change coming up. And that is that I mentioned we have minors in business analytics in the course. We recently added a major in business analytics. So I think the exciting thing to look forward to is that we'll have an even greater mix of students coming up either next spring or the following spring that will include people who have had even more training in analytics during their time in the University of Delaware. And it'll increase the variety of solutions that we can provide to our project sponsors. So that's really exciting, as is being part of a growing program. But in addition to that, I'd like to concur with many of your other recent guests who have said that they're focused on what the future looks like in their classrooms. Certainly what's next is going to involve some changes. And it seems like there are lots of opportunities to reimagine our courses when we have the option of being in person, but also using the new tools we've learned for engagement and flexibility. So in the broader sense of what's next, I really don't know, but I'm thinking about it a lot. Our students got an interesting email. For the first time since I've been out as we go, we had about a foot of snow and it was coming down pretty quickly. And instead of getting a notice that classes were canceled, they got a note that all classes will take place remotely today. 
<laughs> so one change is, I think, for those students who used to look forward to the occasional snow day in upstate New York, those days are probably gone pretty much everywhere. It's not just the students that look forward to those days. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> but you're right. That's a big change. And we're seeing that at the University of Delaware as well. Our winter session courses were not affected by snow. Well, thanks so much, Katie, for joining us and sharing other great stories from your classroom. There's so much to learn from your practice, and I'm glad that you were able to join us again. Well, thank you so much for having me back. I really enjoy talking with both of you, but also I enjoy learning so much from all the guests that you talk with on your show. And I really enjoy your podcast as well and looking forward to hearing more episodes. And this sounds like a really great project you have there. Thanks so much. Yeah, I hope everyone will check out the On Cultivating Student Engagement in Higher Ed podcast. And I'm hoping to put out a second season this spring. And we will share a link to that in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.